Hello once again, ladies and gentlemen, geeks and geekettes, and wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the Mary Geekville, and the host of Geekville Radio, coming at you with day 17 of our Geekville Radio anthology for National Podcast Post Month, a.k.a. Napod Pomo. And I said wrestling fans because we are stepping back into the world of pro wrestling for day 17. This episode is about the career of the late, great Wahoo McDaniel. I know a lot of old school wrestling fans know that name. And the reason I selected this episode is because it is a perfect example of what I mean when I say Classic Wrestling Memories has content you won't find in many other wrestling shows, if at all. Because my co-host, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock, was a wrestler for 15-some years, and he knew Wahoo McDaniel both on a personal and professional level. So he does tell some stories about Chief that you probably won't just aren't going to get anywhere else except for this podcast. So if you're a fan of Chief Wahoo McDaniel, or if you just want to hear some stories from the inside of the wrestling business, this is a good show for you. So here we go. A couple years back, myself and Crazy Train talking the late, great Chief Wahoo McDaniel. Hello once again, ladies and gentlemen, this is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the host for this edition of Classic Wrestling Memories, coming at you with uh, a show I've been looking forward to doing for a long time here. I mean, one of the things we like to do here at Classic Wrestling Memories is highlight the life and career of specific wrestlers, and one of the things I really like to do with this show, and it's one of the things I've been wanting to do about the show for a long time, is talk about wrestlers who may not be uh, the first wrestler that rolls off your tongue. Obviously, everybody knows Hulk Hogan, everybody knows Ric Flair and all that, and there's a gazillion podcasts out there about some of the all-time greats. But one of the things that I think makes for great podcasts is to have exclusive content, and that's what you're going to get with this show, is content you're not going to get in a lot of other places because uh, this man may not have main-evented WrestleMania, but he was very much an influence on a lot of the all-time legends, and the subject of this episode of Classic Wrestling Memories is none other than Wahoo McDaniel. And joining me from a nice padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Um, looking really forward to this podcast uh, episode. I'm pretty sure if you've listened to any of our podcasts, uh, it's no secret. I was friends with the chief in his later years, um, was a big influence and helped to me early in my careers. Uh, as a wrestler and just as a man and so some of some of the things you'll hear today will be some of my personal stories uh and i apologize beforehand i i guarantee i will get emotional a couple times uh that meant that much to me uh and i will try to catch myself but it, it will happen i guarantee it so all apologies beforehand all right let's start out with the beginning here edward aka wahoo mcdaniel was born in a town called bernice louisiana 1938. So as of this recording, he would be approximately 80 years old uh, if he were still with us. And now Bernice, is is that a suburb of a, a bigger city in Louisiana or is it kind of looked at as no, its own? It's small community, small community. Okay. But it's, community. It, it's what had a lot of oil workers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of the state of Louisiana is oil. 
I mean, it is it's just off the coast rigs, off of, you know, out in the Gulf, off of New Orleans. There's a lot of oil in the state of Louisiana. Actually, his father worked for the oil community, worked for the oil business as well, correct? Yeah. His dad was what they call a roughneck. Uh, that's a real term, not derogatory. Google it, folks. It's a term that they use themselves. That's the guys that work on the oil rigs. Um, both the, it, both, you know, the platforms out in the, out in the, uh, ocean and also the ones inland. And, uh, my understanding is this is coming from several sources. It is legitimately one of the most quote unquote manliest jobs you can have. It's a very much a physically intense, dangerous job. Uh, I know it and the guys that do the deep sea fishing, especially in the North Atlantic and North Pacific and lumberjacks are usually regarded as about three of the most dangerous and physically enduring jobs that you can have in the world. So, you know, that that gives you any idea to what kind of man Wahoo's father was and what kind of environment Chief was raised in. And I would also probably put uh, coal mining up in there uh, in mm-hmm. that category as well. That's another one that gets thrown in there a lot as well, yes. <laughs> yeah. This is not the desk jobs like you and I have now. <laughs> right. No, right. no, 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 no. And, right. uh, yeah, that, that, that's just – it is what it is. I, I've met a couple of roughnecks in my life. And even if they weren't big men, they all seemed to have huge hands and they were calloused. And this was years after their retirement. I mean, they earned their 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 keep. Let's there's no doubt about that. And growing up, Wahoo played a lot of sports uh, in mm. high school. He is he uh, played baseball. And I believe he played football in high school as well. I mean, obviously, he had that successful NFL career, but he played uh, mm-hmm. football in high school as well. Correct. He was like a four star. He was like a four sports star in high school. I think he ran track and field. He played football, obviously, baseball player. A little fun trivia note: uh, when he was playing in middle, when he was in middle school, because they moved to Texas when he was a small child. Once again, Texas is also an oil state, and most of the time, you know, you would talk to Chief if he would share stories with you about his youth. It was Texas, so I I gathered he moved to Texas at a fairly young age because he doesn't remember a lot about Louisiana. So it seems to me that Texas is, you know, most of his memories of his youth. But anyway, as as a middle schooler, he was um, an all star little league baseball player. And I don't think I'm surprised anybody when I when we let him know that you know athletics is huge in the state of Texas, especially football. But baseball isn't far behind. So to be a an all star in your little league was a big deal. Well, the coach of their team was George Herbert Walker Bush, as in President Bush. One, you know, the the successor to President Reagan and uh, to every time he would refer to, you know, the former president in our discussions, he would still call him coach. So (laughs) which I understand as a former ball player myself, my one of my little league football coaches uh, is a former circuit judge and and is now a federal judge and was a former state senator. He's still coach to me. (laughs) So, I mean, it's just the way it is. But. That gives you an insight into, and as you'll see as we talk more about Chief, the kind of circles and people that, that, that Chief knew. He was he he had a personal relationship with a with a former president. Okay, this coach. Um, he he holds a lot of records, or they've probably been broken now, but he held several records for tackles in a game and and punts and stuff. He was a, a linebacker and a punter, which is an unusual combination for a football player. <laughs> that were still Texas state records for a long time. And um, he was from West Texas is where they lived. And I believe he played uh, – He, I believe he, play, he was at Midlands. And I think he played at Odessa High. And if anybody knows about that part of Texas, that – you're familiar with the movie Friday Night Lights, the television series, correct? Yes. Seth? 
Yes. That is based on that part of Texas high school football. That's the kind of football that, that Wahoo played in high school. The uh, Meridian High School, which I think is in Plano, and then there's and then there's the Odessa, and then the Midlands is just a fierce three-way rivalry. And these some of the greatest high school players in the country over the last fifty years have come out of that part. Of, and they've gone on to have you know successful college and NFL careers have come from that part of Texas. So uh, yeah, he was definitely. You know, he was he was an athlete. He was a he was an amazing athlete, even at his younger years. I think it shouldn't shock anybody that knew Chief as a child to see that he became such a huge football and wrestling star by any stretch of the imagination. And then after high school, he he did go to college uh, at the University of Oklahoma, which is of course uh, Jim Ross's favorite uh, college team. So he actually <laughs> was a Sooner for a while, correct? Yes, for four years. Uh, his he. Now, for those fans who follow college, blah, 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 who follow college football, and even you who don't follow follow college football, Seth, you are aware that Alabama and the Nick Saban uh, uh, program that he's instituted there is kind of currently the gold standard for what for greatness in college football. Bud Wilkinson, who was the coach of Oklahoma, and from the mid '50s to the late '60s at, o- at Oklahoma was the same thing of that era. They were consistently national contenders, won multiple national titles in that in that time frame. So going to play for Bud Wilkinson in that era, that was the big deal. That was a very big deal. That was the cream of the crop of college football. Uh, to, to step back to his high school high school career, though, before we get on to his college career, I forgot to mention a story. And Jim Cornette has recently told this story on his podcast. Uh this is how, how great he was as a high school athlete and how, how popular he was in the, that part of West Texas. When Wahoo, and we'll cover this later, it, later in his life he was a road agent for, for, the, for, the, for the Crockett's and then for Turner. They were in that part of Texas doing a house show or a clash or something like that, and Chief was a road agent. And a fan had come to the show and given him an old newspaper clipping from his high school days. And he was showing it to the boys in the locker room. And it's the front page of the local newspaper, Ed Little Wahoo McDaniel leads Midlands to victory over whoever it was, scores all the points. They beat this team like 38 to nothing, and he scored every 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 point that the team scored was, was either touchdown he ran back or ran in or, or a, a field goal he extra point he kicked. So that's amazing in and of itself. But then if you scan down to the bottom of the front page and little small print in the corner of this front page, Country star Elvis Presley to perform at fairgrounds this weekend, and he kind of <laughs> joked. He kind of jokes with the boys. See, I was even bigger than Elvis back in the day, <laughs> to which all the boys got a good chuckle out of. So that you know, um, and, and, and and you know, if you notice, I said there it said in the headline, "Little Wahoo." I forgot to mention the nickname Wahoo was his nickname long before football or wrestling. Chief got that nickname growing up. His father, being a roughneck, was a big man. He was about six foot one and about two hundred and fifty pounds. Had those big, huge hands I talked about that roughneckers had, and everybody called him Big Wahoo. I, how that nickname came about, I have no idea. So everybody started calling Chief Little Wahoo when he was a kid to delineate between him and his father. He would drop the little part of that moniker when he got to Oklahoma to play for Bud Wilkinson, but that 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 as you know. Maybe that's why we had such an affinity. I've talked before that my my nickname, Crazy Train, my ring name, was actually my nickname going all the way back to high school football. So there was already a connection when I first met Chief. You know, we both had our wrestling names actually were not our just our wrestling names. They went back to our youth. Um, so that was where the Wahoo name came from was his father. And but his real name was Ed, 
but I don't know about you. Wahoo sounds way much cooler than Ed when you're talking about a football player or a wrestler. Do you agree? Right, absolutely. You know, <laughs> it's it, same reason that uh, Dusty Rhodes sounds more interesting than Virgil Reynolds. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, no offense to Dwayne Johnson. The Rock just sounds a whole lot cooler, you know? <laughs> yeah, and I guess it's uh, a good thing maybe I never got into the business because I wouldn't be, have been able to use my childhood nickname if I became a wrestler. Which is? Mad Dog. Oh, no, no. The Vashon family would have had some issues with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mad Dog is on the, Mad Dog and, and, and is on that list that I put Wahoo on of top ten guys in the history of the wrestling I do not want to mess with. So, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Mad Dog and Wahoo are, are contemporaries, and, and, and every to a man, any, any vet from that era will tell you they were two of the toughest men that ever stepped in a ring. But anyway. <laughs> and full disclosure, I didn't get the name Mad Dog from uh, sports or anything like that. It, ha- it had to do with uh, – Pinewood Derby car racing. I figured you just had a, uh, <laughs> yeah, not not exactly the most uh, athletic. Um, hey, I, I was an Eagle Scout. I raced Pinewood Derby when I was in Cub Scouts. It's okay, you know. Uh, I thought maybe it was an accident with some Colgate and you had a foaming mouth, but that's another story for another <laughs> yeah. time. <laughs> at least, at least, at least Atticus Finch didn't try to put you down. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> right. Atticus Finch, for our listeners who don't know, Google it. That's a pretty deep cut. I'm sorry. Anyways, I do have an English degree. I, let's. Look, I digress. <laughs> right. So you said he scored a lot of touchdowns uh, in yeah. college. Now, when he went pro... No, this, is in high, this, is in, this is in high school. That was in high school was what that headline was from. But okay. when he got to college, I mean, you can go back and watch the WWE Network uh, to uh, Ric Flair's uh, induction into the Hall of Fame. He talks about some of these things. He talks about in his autobiography. I've heard it from Chief. was very self-deprecating when I would bring these up, but I heard them from other vets. I've heard them from Blackjack and stuff. Some of the things he did at Oklahoma were just are still legend on campus to this day. He um, he was kind of marred by a lot of injuries his early year career at Oklahoma, but by the time he rolled around to be a, a senior, he was I mean he wasn't all American, but he was very very I think he was all conference. Uh, he was leading tackler on the team, and this is in despite of the fact he was well known for getting in trouble on campus. He'd been in a lot of fights, uh, got drunk a couple of times, skipping classes. It's a different era. You could, you, you, the academic standards were not as high for athletes back then as they are now because we're talking right. the early 1960s. But um, and Bud Wilkinson was known as quite the disciplinarian. So the fact that he still made the field even with all these screw ups should should be a testament to how how gifted an athlete he was. You know, and like I said, it wasn't like there weren't a lot of guys on that team that were, what we would call today four and five star recruits. There were other guys that probably could have played his position that were just as athletically talented. But he was just they couldn't keep him off the field. And like I said, it was an unusual combination that he would play linebacker and punter. Uh, but of course, back then most everybody played two ways. And and um, he was such a good punter. He holds a school record, and I believe it's an NCAA record. I could be wrong, uh, but I know it's an Oklahoma University of Oklahoma, Oklahoma University record that probably will never be broken. He had a punt that was like 91 or 93 yards at one point, like his junior or senior year. Think about that. That's almost the entire length of the football field. Kind of makes uh, the visual of uh, Kevin Butler in the 80s doing a 56-yard uh, uh, goal. <laughs> kind of, kind of yeah, dwarfs I mean, that. Well, I, mean, well, I mean, yeah, yeah. To, to, give, you, to give you a – to give you a, a, a frame of reference for our listeners that don't follow football, uh, today's punters, obviously, that's all they do. They focus on punting. It's not like it was in, in Wahoo's time. And they're much better trained athletes. I mean, we know more about diet and training, and, and their, their technique was probably better than Chiefs. Uh, I, I, I mean, a top-flight, all-conference, all, all conference, 
um, all all pro that level of punter in co- major college or pro football averages about forty five to fifty yards a punt. That's their season average is forty. So that means they've had some over that, some under that. But a sixty yard punt is considered boomingly long. And today he beat that by thirty three yards. Now by his by his own admission, a lot of that had to do with the wind was behind him, obviously. And, you know, the way the ball hit and then continued to roll, and the other team never downed it. But that's amazing. He kicked from his own end zone and almost landed it in the other end zone. That's just – win behind your back or nothing. That's That blows my mind. That's just – wow. <laughs> wow. I don't think Ray Guy, who's generally regarded as the greatest punter of all time, he's the only punter in the NFL Hall of Fame. And the college award that goes to the top punter in college football is named the Ray Guy Award, and he never punted that far. So let's take that for a frame of reference. Yeah, you brought up uh, uh, playing both sides. Mm-hmm. But by the time he got into pro, because uh, after mm-hmm. college, he started playing for the Houston Oilers. And mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but he played defensive position uh, uh, as a linebacker, but he would also be yes. on offense as a guard, right? Occasionally, occasionally. Uh, by that point, the pros were kind of, 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 of getting to the platoon football we have today where you play just one side or the other. But there were still some two-way guys even back then. Uh, another story I wanted to mention that Flair mentions in his Hall of Fame induction from his college days, uh, just to give you an idea of how, how – like I cannot emphasize how competitive Chief was until his dying days. This man was born a competitor. He, he loved to scrap and fight. And I don't mean that literally. Well, he literally liked to fight too, but that's another story. He just had that competitive nature in his, in, in his heart. On a bet when he was in college at Oklahoma, he ran a marathon, which is 26.6 miles. He ran from Oklahoma City to Tulsa overnight to prove he could do it. Now, this is a big man. This is a 250-pound man who's a weight, who, who didn't ever train with weights but had a football player's build. And he ran a long distance like that and didn't won the bet. Oh, and by the way, when he was done, he took another bet right after that he couldn't drink he couldn't drink motor oil. So he drank like five tablespoons of motor oil after he was done running the marathon. That sounds suicidal. Oh yeah, it was so bad. Everybody talks about that he literally was sweating motor oil at football practice next week. Oh, by the way, he did this in in season. He did this during the football season. So he, he was going to practice every day in class. Well, he did skip classes a lot. And then he ran a marathon, you know, the day after a, a ball game. Amazing. Are yeah. you kidding me? Are you kidding? I mean, these are like so fantastical you can't make this up. And there's too many people that verify it. The Briscoe brothers can verify the marathon and oil one because they were at Oklahoma State, their rival school at the same time. And the the, the, the legends of Wahoo made it from, you know, <laughs> from Norman to Bartlesville, which were which is Norman's where Oklahoma and Bartlesville's where Oklahoma State is. So, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> wow. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. Go ahead, Seth. I've got you off. Yeah, he played for the Oilers, which, of course, at the time was a AFL team. We had the two leagues at the time, but go ahead. And it's a good thing I checked my notes here because uh, technically I was wrong. He was not drafted by the Oilers. He was actually drafted was, by, the, by the San Diego Chargers, but I don't think he actually, actually played in the never, game for the Chargers. Never played for the, never played for the Chargers. I think he told me a story one time where he went to San Diego to maybe training camp. And I think he had a disagreement with the coaching staff, I think is what he said. Um, and that's why he wound up getting traded to Houston. A lot of times when I would question Chief about both his decisions in football and in wrestling, um, he didn't shy away from his Native American heritage because he was legitimately Native American. We didn't mention that. He is half half uh, Chickasaw, half Choctaw. So he was. it was not a gimmick like it was for – 
for Jay Strongbow. He legitimately was a Native American, 100 percent. Um, and uh, he, he but anyway, he uh, he would always say when I would bring up those questions, it was all about the wampum, kid, all about the wampum. <laughs> and, you know, he um, I, I often wonder if Chief could have gotten by in today's world um, with his gimmick. Um, it was somewhat stereotypical, I think. And I think it's a it bothers me because if you knew Chief, he was not ashamed at all of his of, of his Native American heritage. He was quite proud of it. When you go to his home, it was you know decorated in a lot of Native American you know like like bear skins and deer heads. Some of that's because he was a hunter, but I mean a lot of the artwork was Native American and stuff, and um, the, the furnishings, the light fixtures were very Native American influenced. Um, I don't think he saw being called an Indian uh, as derogatory as a lot of people today would 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 think it is uh, being called a, a redskin. He did not find that offensive. And I know it's a different time, but he he understood by his own words to me, you know, was he didn't say this. I'm paraphrasing. Was stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason, you know, um, but he was proud. I mean, make no mistake about it. Never, ever disrespect Native American heritage and culture around Chief Wahoo McDaniel. You were going to get in a fight. You were going to get in a fight. He took it very seriously, but he was still lax enough with it to make comments. Like I said, it's about the wampum kid. You know, and when he get when he would get mad at me sometimes, he could kid. I'm getting ready to go on the warpath. You know, so those by today's standards would be seen as very derogatory and very, uh, you know, negative. But here's a man. It is his culture. And he has no problems with it. So that's just something to think about as we continue to talk. And I, I, I relay some stories to you. I, I think I'd relate those to you off mic. Had I not, Seth? Yes, yes, absolutely. Mm. Well, what say ye? I mean, do, do you understand where he's coming from on that one? A heritage is heritage, you know? I mean, right. you know, I, I can't see how anybody would have a problem with him being proud of his heritage. And right. like, I, like you said uh, about uh, Chief J. Strongbow, and just for listeners who may not know, his history, Chief J. Strongbow was not Native American. He was actually Italian. He just looked like a Native Joe American. When you put the head, yeah, when you put the headdress on him, he looked like an Indian. And when we get later into Wahoo's wrestling career, we'll explain where Chief J. Strongbow, because they're actually very intrinsically tied together. But I digress. That's for later in the show. But, um, yeah, one of my favorite bumper stickers I've ever seen, and before memes existed, bumper stickers, I think, were the great things to have, we had in this country. That's a, a good little, point. You know, quick, <laughs> you know, long before memes, there were bumper stickers. Chief had a bumper sticker on his truck that I loved, and, and, and I think it might be my favorite bumper sticker of all time. And it said, you can trust the American government. Just ask an Indian. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was one of the greatest bumper stickers I've ever seen in my life. And he had it, and he had it on the back window of his truck, and he loved that bumper sticker. <laughs> and he had his, you know, he was what you, when I talk about how proud of his heritage, what he had like one of those little, you know, truck stop gas station dream catchers hanging from his rearview mirror, and he had a gun rack. Uh, in the, on, on his truck with his shotgun in the top rack and his fishing pole in the bottom. So that, was, that was chief, you know. <laughs> he was he was an outdoorsman and a man's man. But anyway, go ahead and go on to his football career. We'll get to some of the other stuff later. And the reason we bring up the football career is obviously because he was a very accomplished football player. But when he started playing for the Oilers in 1960 um, and maybe 61, that's really about the time he started wrestling. And he would wrestle mm-hmm. in the off season. Because unlike today, NFL players did not have the salary that they do now. Now, of course, it's millions yeah. of dollars, and even in the off season, it's still pretty much a, 
uh, a full-time gig when you when you talk about training and practice right. but in those days professional football did not pay very well so on the off season wahoo would uh, wrestle and got his start in texas and that would and have been uh, that would have been under uh, dory dory senior right 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 and and that like you said was not a new chief was not a the only one. There were a lot of football players that played in the offseason because it was it made sense. They had a, they had a, they had a name value, so the locals knew who they were. It brought legitimacy to the sport of professional wrestling, which of course you know kayfabe was definitely in vogue then. So you could bring in a local football hero, and he automatically had credibility. The mo- the most current examples we've seen of that would have been Steve McMichael and Kevin Green in in WCW. You know, they brought legitimacy. Uh, or, or even even when you talk basketball with like Rodman and Carl Malone in WCW, um, it just it made sense. These guys were known to the audience as an athlete, and uh, Fritz von Erich was one that did that. Um, I think Ernie Ladd did that. Um, there were a lot of famous wrestlers we can name that did that. But you will find, and we probably need to do a show, quite frankly, on the history of wrestling in Texas as a whole, but especially the Amarillo territory. The Amarillo Territory, which, of course, like you said, was started by Dory Funk Sr., uh, probably helped a lot more of those guys transition from football to wrestling than any other territory I can think of in that era. Um, And a lot of that had to do with the fact that, obviously, his sons, Dory Jr. and Terry, played football at West Texas State. So they had an inroad. They knew a lot of these guys from either playing against them or with them in college. Uh, But the Amarillo Territory, if you think about it, was very dissimilar from any other territory. This wasn't, you know, this wasn't like Don Owen in in in, in Portland, or you know, it wasn't like San Francisco, or even here in the Carolinas with Charlotte, or or you know, uh, Detroit with the, with with the, the Sheik or Vince Senior. Those all had major cities. There was no major city in the Amarillo Territory, and the Amarillo Territory was huge and it was spread out. They ran out. They ran. They went all the way to Arizona to the west, and there were no big cities. Yet it was a financially viable promote uh, territory for years, and a lot of it was these stars that they produced. I mean, Wahoo was just one of them. Wahoo and both the Funk Brothers and and uh, Barry Windham and and Tully Blanchard and Tito Santana and I mean I can just go on and on with a number of, of Hall of Fame level guys that, that started to and Amarillo. J.J. Dillon uh, got you know. Speaks glowingly of Amarillo. Dusty and Dick were, were stars in Amarillo when they first got together before they went to Vern and Minneapolis. So I think you're getting the idea of how awesome a territory Amarillo was. Absolutely. I mean, you just named off a good half dozen Hall of Fame level names right there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, mentioning Tully, and, you know, obviously his father pr- promoted in San Antonio, which is in the other part of the state, but he really got his start in Amarillo. As a territory, and, and and he pretty much stayed in Texas until he came here to the Carolinas, and that's where he got his national exposure. But but Tully got really close to Wahoo, much to the chagrin of Tully's father, because Wahoo was older and Wahoo was a bit of a partier, and I think he thought Tully was a bad inf- or Wahoo was a bad influence on Tully. Now some of this stuff I'm not getting from Chief; I'm getting this from my interactions with Tully. Um, but Tully was a punter and a quarterback at West Texas State. Well, who do you think taught him how to punt? Wahoo. The pair of, of cleats that he would change into to punt when he was at West Texas were a pair of cleats that Wahoo gave him, and Wahoo taught him how to punt. So, I mean, Wahoo, Tully is one of those guys that's a Hall of Famer 
that will do, can, has nothing bad to say about Chief. When you mentioned earlier that there were tons of guys he was influential on, Tully's one of those guys, you know. And that's saying a lot considering how good a wrestler his father was and, and how successful a promoter his father was that Wahoo was just as big an influence on Tully as his father, as Tully's father was on him, Tully. So, you know. Quarterback and punter, that's, that's a combination you don't hear every, every day. No, the last big-name guy I can think of was Danny White from the Dallas Cowboys in the early 80s. He did both. And I, I, there was, there was, when I was in college, we had one guy who was a backup quarterback who was actually our punter. So it's not unheard of, but you're right. It is an unusual. It's still more common than linebacker punter, which is what Wahoo was. But anyway, <laughs> it's just weird to see a 250-pound man back there punting the ball. Yes, punters are usually tall, skinny guys. You know, they're not the biggest guys on the field. Right, absolutely. Now, uh, regarding – the professional football career. We're, I think we're probably going to wind up the the football talk here before we get into what probably people are uh, waiting for us to talk about, which is the you know the wrestling career. Uh, uh, he played for uh, four different teams, not counting oh. the Chargers, uh, Oilers, uh, Broncos, Jets, and Dolphins. Mm-hmm. And um, wrestling in Texas, uh, do you recall any of the people he may have uh, fought at, at the time over there or had matches with? Boris Malenko was his big feud, which, of course, is the father of Dean Malenko. Uh, and a lot of people think Ivan Koloff invented the Russian chain match. No, that would be Boris Malenko. He, he did the Russian gimmick before Ivan did. Um, and I, well, Ivan would have told you that um, if he was still with us. But, uh, yeah, Boris Malenko, who was a big star in Florida and a big star in the Carolinas and a big star in Texas. And I think they actually main evented some matches for Paul Bosch in Houston, which – We've discussed how big Paul Bosch and Houston territory was as well in Texas, one of the premier territories in the NWA at the time as well. Um, I think he, he, you know, I think he might have even gotten some world title matches. I mean, what it, Wahoo quickly rose up the ranks to be a top guy, you know. I mean, he was main eventing pretty early in his career, even when he was only a part timer. Um, so, but I think his biggest early feuds that that I've, I've, my research has told me, and he talked, I heard him talk about working Boris before. So, you know, from what I gathered, that was a, a series of, of matches that Wahoo enjoyed. So take that for what it's worth, you know. Um, so in this time in Amarillo, as you say, he fought uh, Boris Malenko. But I, I think Dory Jr. would have been the big star uh, at, at that point. Actually, by this time, Dory was probably the NWA champion, right? Because it was like the mid-60s not, not would not, have been. Okay. Right. Not quite yet. Because Dory didn't win his world title, I think, till 68 or 69. But obviously, he was on his ascension to that, you know. So he was being prepped, primed by the NWA and his father for that run. So, yeah, but I mean, Dory Jr. and, and Wahoo were friends, you know, and, and, and there was, once again, having, the, having the, 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 the thumbs up seal of approval from a promoter with the stroke of a Dory Sr. and a Paul Bosch and, and a friendship with a rising star like Dory Jr. served Wahoo well in his career. And, and his, you know, he was obviously because that thought of very highly by other promoters. And um, like I said, it also the legitimacy of being a current football player and star helped him as well. Um, My favorite team, everybody knows, is the Denver Broncos because I grew up in Denver before I moved back here to the Carolinas. And I and that was one of the times I asked him, why did he why did he leave Denver to go to New York to play for the Jets? Because he was traded and he would always say it was about the wampum kid. But then I also found out 
through other sources that the, the money was part of the issue, but the biggest issue was he got in a fight and beat up two cops after a game in Denver. So the, the Denver front off Broncos front office said, we probably need to get him out of town. So like, I told you he was a wild individual, but to, 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 to speak to his competitiveness, one of the most famous exam, uh, uh, games, probably the most famous game he played as an NFL player was once he got traded to the jets and they played the Denver Broncos, his former team. He scored 23 tackles in that game. <laughs> and I guess he was so mad at what happened at Denver, he just took it out on the team when he played them again with the Jets. And uh, his, it, it was, it, it's, it's that game is famous for the fact that I mean, it was even there was even a big article in the New York Papers about it. Every time he would make a tackle, the PA announcer there at Shea Stadium, where the Jets played at the time, would say, "Another tackle by guess who?" And the whole crowd would yell, "Wahoo!" And uh, a funny little trivia fact. You know, the the original XFL talked about how it was breaking ground and the fact that it would let players put whatever name they wanted on the back of their jerseys, unlike the NFL that made you put your last name. No, actually, Wahoo did that in the 60s. Wahoo's name on the back of his jersey was Wahoo. It wasn't McDaniel. <laughs> so <laughs> Wahoo was – maybe Vince stole the idea from Chief. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was – that was uh, you know, that was, that was probably his most – but still, 23 tackles in one game is an amazing feat, don't you think? I certainly haven't seen anybody do it. I mean, and you're from Chicago, which we're talking Erlacher and Butkus and, and Singletary. There's guys that should have done that where you're from, but they, even they didn't, you know. But uh, as a matter of fact, we say he played for the Dolphins, he played for the Jets. Two of his teammates, when he was both those teams, respectively, were Joe Namath and Larry Zonka. For our younger listeners that don't know those names, Google them. Especially Zonka is C S O N Z K A. They're both Hall of Famers in the NFL. Okay. Larry Zonka was legitimately one of the best running backs. He was on those undefeated, that undefeated Dolphin team in 73, I think it was, 72. Joe Namath, everybody's heard of Joe Namath. Both these individuals who are Hall of Fame NFL players have whole page in their autobiographies dedicated to Wahoo McDaniel stories from time he was their, their teammates. And he wasn't. A, he's not a Hall of Famer like they are. So, once again, he had an influence on it. He was that just that charismatic, that outstanding of a person that he had. You know, he had so much, so much so that these two guys had all these stories to tell in their autobiographies. Yet they dedicated a page. Both of them dedicated a page to Chief. You know, that is interesting. And now, when he got traded to uh, the Jets after that uh, incident, yeah, it was Denver from Denver to New York. That was about the time uh, Vincent Senior, Vincent McMahon Senior, uh, came calling, and Wahoo did actually right. work for the Worldwide uh, Wrestling Federation for a while. He sure did. He did work some. He, he did work some in New York. That's right. Um, it wasn't a long run. It wasn't on top. You're talking the Bruno era, obviously, right? Which, for anybody who wants to know about that era, refer to our our episode on the late great Bruno San Martino a few episodes back. But yeah, he did work some in New York, and he was. Once again, Vince played up the fact he was a local player for the Jets. You know, um, that automatically gave him credibility, a baby face with the crowd. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure, but I think he did the same thing. His next team was Miami. I think he worked some for Eddie Graham down in Florida, too. I'm not sure if it would be. An, yeah, it would have been Eddie at that time because he had bought it. Cowboy Luttrell had sold it to him. So, yeah, but I think he worked some for Eddie as well. So, yeah, he was he was working in the territory of wherever team he was at the time. That's for sure. So during that eight year stint that he had uh, playing professional football, he played with four different teams, the, uh, the Oilers, the Broncos, the Jets, and the Dolphins, and he actually played in some all-pro games as well during during his time, right? 
Yeah, I think so. He was there. He never made the Hall of Fame, but he was All Pro a couple of seasons. And yeah, I think he was All Pro if I remember correct. I think he was All Pro one season with the Jets and one season with the Dolphins, but I could be wrong. Now, nineteen sixty eight was the last year he played pro football, and I can only assume this is just my my thoughts based on what we've been talking about here, because mm-hmm. we're t- we are talking nineteen sixty eight, and that would have made him only thirty years old. You know, basically, right. he was, he's still a young man. Yeah, physical prime, but. He started getting so many wrestling bookings that that's why he left football. Again, going back to... It's all about the wampum kid. Yeah, and like we've talked about before with the pro football players not getting not getting the salaries then that they do now, uh, it kind of made sense. I mean, would you yeah. keep going with the, the lesser paying gig or would you switch to what's making you a ton of money in the summertime mm-hmm. where, and where you can also do it year-round? I think he told me once that he actually made more money just wrestling for the summer one year than he made in his in his contracted salary for the NFL. One year. I can't remember what year that was, but he told me that one time. Think about that. I mean, I think his contract he said was like sixty five or fifty five thousand dollars plus travel expenses for the NFL. And he made closer to a hundred thousand dollars just in the summer just wrestling. And he was moving up the card quickly because he was one so good and two because he had the name value. So it's from a financial standpoint, that's not a hard decision to make now, is it? No, no, not at all. You're almost doubling your income in three months of what you're making the rest of the year. Now, how long do you think he wrestled in uh, in Florida, or he probably would have gone back to Texas after? Yeah, I think he went back to Texas and back to Houston to Paul Bosch, I think was really his first territory full-time, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, I think it wasn't long after Houston's when he wound up in Minneapolis, and that's where he really started to make a name for himself, working for Vern. Um, but yeah, I think Houston was his first full-time territory once he had gone to wrestling year-round. And I think he renewed his his uh, his rivalry with Boris Malenko at that point. I know he tagged some at the time with Crusher, a, a yet another legitimate tough guy. <laughs> hmm. Wow, think about that team, the Crusher and Wahoo McDaniel. I would hate, oh, man. You do not want you to be on the bad need, side of them. <laughs> I, I tell you, even in a worked environment, I would, I would, you would be hitting the, you'd be hitting the whirlpool after a match with those two. Whew, wow. <laughs> I mean, I just imagine all the chops and the punches you could. Oh, my Lord. Have You'd be so bruised up. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and shortly after that point, this would have been the early 70s. That's mm-hmm. when he moved to the Carolinas. Or I shouldn't say right. physically moved, but that's when he started working for Jim Crockett Promotions. And that's arguably, right. I think, where he may have had his most successful run. And I think it's the run that most of the historians probably remember him for. I mean, is that fair to right, say? Right, right. Yeah, of course. Of course it is. I mean, he was a star for Vern, and he was a top guy, you know, for Vern. And this story's well documented. We as wrestling fans owe a debt of gratitude to Wahoo McDaniel because there probably is no Ric Flair as we know him without Wahoo McDaniel. Uh, you know, Rick just started uh, in Minneapolis training with Vern, and it was on Wahoo's suggestion that Rick was brought down here to the Carolinas. And the rest is history now, isn't it? So. Uh, it, there you go. I mean, it, it, it's his influence is just he doesn't get the credit he deserves sometimes. Uh, I think while well, he does that one thing right there alone, you're the guy who put Rick is your suggestion that got Ric Flair into the spot that made him become the nature boy and become the star that he he, he became. Um, and to this day, you know, Rick Champ will just Rick Wahoo put Champ on the map. It wasn't just suggesting he come to the Carolinas. The feuds they had in Flair's early days here in the 70s are second probably only to his Flair's run with Steamboat 
especially in the, the, the eyes of the fans around here. I mean, Wahoo, Blackjack, Valentines, and Flair, those were the guys in the 70s in the Carolinas. And we've discussed before on several episodes, the era we're talking about was when George Scott came in and took over the book for, for Big Jim and transitioned the Mid-Atlantic Territory from a tag team territory to a singles territory. And the way he was going to do that was through the top feud. And the top feud was Wahoo McDaniel as the babyface versus the heel Johnny Valentine. And those both both legitimate tough guys, both very well respected, both guys who were a bit snug in the ring. And to this day, fans around here still talk about those open-handed overhand chops that Wahoo would do and those huge sledging forearm punches that – Johnny Valentine, and I've seen some of the footage, the raw footage of those, which unfortunately aren't on the network. You have to get them from collectors, from the you know tape from old television shows. I mean, they were they were beating the heck out of each other, man. I mean, you could see the sweat fly off their chests, and it was real. And it was that they were the guys here in the Carolinas. That feud was, you know, well that may not be real, but that and that may not be real, but those two guys, that was real. Wahoo McDaniel versus Johnny Valentine was real. And then, of course, Johnny, unfortunately, was in the plane wreck that, that, that Ric Flair was in that broke his back. It retired Johnny. And that's what brought Greg Valentine into the territory uh, to replace, essentially to replace his father. Um, but Wahoo kept going. You know, Wahoo still had the feuds and, and, and tag teams with Flair and Greg Valentine and Black Jack Mulligan and just big raw bone dudes who were. I mean, Ric Flair was probably the biggest quote unquote wimp of that group. And Rick's pretty tough guy so what does that tell you i mean that's some big strong tough guys there we're just beating the crap out of each other and and so it, it, it once again it doesn't surprise me that fans around here were so reluctant to accept the vince mcmahon style of wrestling when that was what we were used to you know yeah you mentioned several things that i was going to mention in my notes there about you know arguably his biggest uh high profile feud certainly one one of his first on on a on a huge level was with Ric Flair and you mentioned autobiographies before i mean Ric Flair to this day praises the name Wahoo McDaniel or as Flair would say Wahoo McDaniels you know. right right that's a common mistake but he would he would tell me kid there ain't no s on the end of my name <laughs> <laughs> and i just let it go cuz i didn't want to get chopped <laughs> <laughs> But the title in question uh, during the, the Carolina runs with Flair was the U.S. title, what is now the WWE mm-hmm. U.S. title by right uh, by by their lineage. lineage, right? And that all started with Johnny Valentine. You know that was and, and think about that. Johnny was already Johnny had Johnny had been a top guy in a lot of the territories for about ten years at that point. You know he was known as a top guy. Wahoo had only been around about four or five years and had only wrestled for Vern at that point. So that should tell you the potential George Scott saw in him to bring him in as the top, the top baby face to switch the territory over to a singles territory. You know, I mean, not many guys get that kind of push within the first five years of their, of their career, unless they're Lex Luger or Goldberg, but I digress. Somebody that has that absolute it factor. Yes. You've got everything. I mean, he looked like he looked like a million bucks. And then, and then, and another personal note: Wahoo never worked out. Um, you know, he, which I think a lot of people find shocking because he had such a long football career. And when people think of football players, they think of guys who lift weights. Weightlifting wasn't that big a, a part of the training regiment back then. And and Chief was just naturally raw bone strong. And you know, I'd ask him about it, and he, 
I was, you know, I was all, I was, I was a boy when I grew up. I played outside and went hunting and fishing and climbed trees and just had that natural. I mean, he was about, he was a little bit shorter than me. I chief was probably about five eleven, six foot even, but a legit two hundred and fifty pounds, you know. And I, I have, I've told you before off mic. I was talking about how big his father's hands were. He has some of the biggest hands I have ever seen in my life, and I've shook the hand of Big Show. And he, you know, Big Show's <laughs> a, a full foot taller than Chief was, you know. And his hands are almost as big as Big Show's. He just had these huge bear paws of of hands, and boy, that's what made those chops so devastating. It covered your entire side of your chest, and I mean, when he shook your hand, he just he, he just engulfed your hand, you know. Just engulfed it. Just big, huge hands. But anyway, I'm sorry. I was just something. I don't know why that 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 hit me right now. It just did. It's just my God. Anytime, go back when you watch what stuff is on the network, what you can find on YouTube of Chief, and just just pay attention. You'll notice how big his hands are compared to his arms. But he had no definition. He wasn't cut like even Bruno. The guys obviously weren't cut back then like they are now. But even Bruno had some cut to him. You know, um, Flair was starting to get some cut at this point. Chief had a, just just a big thick dude. You're like, and you look at him and go, I don't want to mess with that Indian because I think he can kick some butt. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And during that Crockett time, Wahoo was a five time U.S. champion. And mm-hmm. taking a look at his entry on the, uh, his Wikipedia entry, mm-hmm. that puts him 14th on the all time list of combined days reigns. He uh, there were people that wow. had more U.S. title reigns, namely Ric Flair. But mm. his combined reign over five uh, title runs was 296 days. So not quite a year then. Huh? Right, right. And, we, and that is all of them put together. But And uh, you, have to also, you also have to remember, too, to, to put some of that into perspective. I'm not shocked by that. If he had been a heel most of the time, his reigns would have been longer. Because out, like we said before, outside of the WWF, Titles back then, even the top regional titles, was about the baby chase, the baby face chasing a heel champion. So most of his runs were him chasing a heel Ric Flair or chasing a heel Johnny Valentine. And when he got the title, they figured out a way to get it off of him fast to get it back to the chase again because that was the formula that worked. So that might be why it's not even more impressive. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another title that he held during those those Crockett years in the mid seventies was the uh-huh. NWA Mid-Atlantic title, which was, if I'm not mistaken, essentially the top title of the Mid-Atlantic Territory uh, of Jim right. Crockett well, Promotions, right? Yeah, well, the US, yeah, the U.S. title was actually the top title, and so it would have been the secondary title. But then once once Crockett got on to, to Turner Television, the U.S. title morphed into more of a national title. Do you follow what I'm saying? Right, similar to how it is now. Um, right, now might not right, be the right, right. The, the right term, but certainly when WCW was around. And you know, it, right, it, it was and, definitely a secondary exactly. title. Right, exactly. It was right underneath the world title. Whereas back then, it was the it was the top title in the in in the Mid Atlantic territory, and the Mid Atlantic would have been the secondary title. Whereas you know, they, like I said, that's a good analogy. WCW it was definitely the secondary title. So yeah, you're right. Now some of the other wrestlers that Wahoo feuded with during the run in Crockett, uh, listen to some of these names: um, Bill Watts, uh, Jerry Graham, Waldo Von Erich. Or would that have been his run in Texas? Oh, no, no. He had some feuds with Waldo both here and there. Waldo, Walt, the Von Erichs worked in Carolina some. But he was – Wahoo was a guy that 
I mean, though he based himself out of the Mid-Atlantic Territory, he did wrestle other places. He would go and he wrestled some in Hawaii. He wrestled some in Florida. He'd go back home to Texas and wrestle some. Uh, you know, I don't think he ever went back up to Vern until later in his career. But, I mean, he was he was definitely a guy who was in demand. He was a top guy. He was a guy – if you grew up in that era and you asked a wrestling fan who knew that there was wrestling beyond their regional territory who were the top guys – Wahoo was one of those names, like Dusty, like a, a, a superstar Billy Graham. Guys of that ilk were the, were the same guys that you know he was on par with. Uh, and he had such a name because of his football career and because of how good a wrestler he was, he could go other places and get bookings and other territories. One, so he would get lent out. But once again, we were talking about his influence. A lot of the chopping that you saw get popular in the, you know, and is now, every, now like every guy uses a chop now. That came from Wahoo. Wahoo did the chops, one, because he had the big hands, and two, it fit his Indian character. Both Black Jack Mulligan and Ric Flair have told me the reason they both started chopping was they had to do something to give a receipt to Wahoo when they had, when they had programs with him. <laughs> you know, and, and, and Flair said it was doubly bad for him because first he had to take all these chops from, from, from Wahoo, and then Wahoo started feuding with Black Jack, so then Black Jack picked up the chop to counter Wahoo's chop, so then the next feud that, that Flair had was what was Blackjack? And he goes, damn, I had to start chopping again to fight Blackjack. His hands were just as big as Wahoo's. And so they, these guys are just, you know, but and, it, and it, it just came from that, you know, that very physical style that was popular here in the Carolinas. And that goes right back to just Chief. Chief had those huge chops. I think I've told the story before on the podcast, and this is a good time you need to tell it. This is we're talking about this part of his career. Um, the first time I ever bled in a match was at the hands of Chief Wahoo McDaniel. Have I told you that story before, Seth, or have I mentioned that on the podcast? I think you talked about it off mic, but I, okay. don't, think, I don't think you actually brought it on the air. So you were in the ring with Wahoo at this point, right? Yeah, this is toward the end of Wahoo's career. I mean, he effectively retired in 93, and I didn't start till 95. But he was still doing you know little spot shows for independent promoters that he liked. And he made mostly battle royals or tag matches where you could you know you could mask obviously how age and had caught up to him and the, and and the nostalgia think, pop right oh heck yeah especially in the carolinas especially here in the carolinas but there was a, there's a local promoter and wrestler named chief jay eagle who is like like much like joe scarpa jay strombo is a tanning bed indian um <laughs> but chief liked him and they tagged together some for the crockets on house shows when jay first started and jay would bring in chief a lot and um, as an announcer for his local television show, but sometimes he would work battle royals. And I was greener than grass. I mean, I hadn't been working about six months at this point, maybe not even a year yet. And he was in the battle royal, and he was booked to go over for, like you said, the nostalgia pop. And um, a lot of the guys in the locker room were teasing Chief about my aforementioned lack of, of weightlifting because all the young guys, we were all brought up in the area. You had to lift weights to be a wrestler. And Chief was kind of just you know shrugging it off, taking it in stride. But I jumped right in with them, you know, not thinking anything of it, not being that uh, savvy, I guess, about locker room politics and etiquette yet. So, you know, it's a regular battle royal. It's not a battle rumble. It's not a, not a royal rumble. It's a regular battle royal. So there's 20 of us in the ring, and so it's just elbows and elbows, nose to nose, guys. And you're, if you've, you've never been a battle royal, there's not a whole lot you can do at that point. There's nothing to do. There's too many bodies. You just just punches and kicks, right? Until mm -hmm. you start thinning out, and then if you want to do spots, you can. But you know, so I'm in the corner and I'm working a guy over, and 
And, and next thing I know, I feel somebody's hand on my shoulder to turn me around. And I turn around, and before I can register what or who it is, I feel this massive, sharp pain on my chest. And I look up, and it's Wahoo. And he has just chopped the ever-living crap out of me, those overhand chops I'm talking about. And then he pushes me in the corner and gives me another one and just caved my chest in. And I'm a big guy, you know. I'm 6'1", I'm 260 pounds. I got a decent-sized chest. I can bench press close to 400 pounds. I'm a good-sized guy. And this just hurt like crazy. And I look down, and for those of you that haven't seen my Facebook or seen some of the pictures we have on, 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 the, on the website, I wrestled – my gimmick was a, a escaped mental patient, and I wrestled in hospital scrubs. So I have a shirt on, and I look down, and I see this little trickle of red where his hand was. And later on, when I get into the locker room, I take my shirt, I take my top off, and I've got a butcher top underneath it, you know, like a singlet top, like, like Brett, mm-hmm. what Bret Hart would wear. He, through my shirt and through the strap on my butcher top, there is just one huge handprint <laughs> and a, a literally a laceration like you used to get as a kid when you would scrape your knee or your elbow in a bike wreck across my top of my chest. He hit me so hard, it just split open my skin. Think about that on my chest. And that's under two layers and, of clothing here. You know, and yes, it's yes. also it's also worth mentioning <laughs> that this is not the same type of chop that you'd see Ric Flair throw. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this was not mm-hmm. the knife edge chop that uh, that kind of became the modern. This chop. is a, this, this is, is an over the hand. He would come from he would come instead of coming from the side, he would bring his hand up like, you know, you're raising your hand to the square and bring his hand straight down onto your chest with an open hand. And I remember looking at it, it was starting to scab over. And I was kind of playing with it. And Chief was just like so nonplussed was sitting there packing his stuff in his bag. And without even looking up, he just he didn't he didn't pull his head up, he just looked up with his eyes and he said, Kid, I like you a lot and I think you have some potential in this business, but you're way too green to be to be ribbing a guy like me. <laughs> and then he looked back down at his bag and I walked over and I and, and when I was done, I shook his you know, when I was done packing, he was packing, I shook his hand. I said, Thank you for the lesson, sir. And he said, You're welcome. And it was done. There was no there. Is, I mean, lesson, lesson, lesson given, lesson received. And it wasn't long after that that me and Chief became close. It wasn't long after that. So he gave me what we call in the business my red badge of courage. The red badge. The red badge is the first time you bleed in a match. For most guys, it's a gig. Mine was a hard way, and it wasn't planned. But message, message, message received. Lesson learned. But it wasn't long after that that word had gotten to Chief. I I worked, was working for actually for another promoter in another part of the South Carolina. Uh, he was there doing autographs, and we got to talking, and word had gotten to Chief that I played college football and that I liked to hunt and fish, and that's where it – that's where our friendship started. That's where our friendship started. So, Again, you know, you're not going to hear uh, stories like this on any po- – on in, mm-hmm. excuse me. <clears throat> Start that over. Wow. <laughs> As I said, folks, stories you're not going to hear on – all the podcasts, you know, these uh, personally relatable stories. But uh, getting back to his career, uh, after the first run for Crockett, that's, I believe, when he worked for Eddie Graham in Florida. And again, looking at oh, some yeah. of these names, um, uh, Antonio Inoki, Giant Baba, uh, Harley Race would have had the NWA title at this yep. time. Uh, sure. He went. To, he, he wasn't just wrestling him here. He would go to Japan some, too. Well, he did several tours of Japan. Yeah. And this is really about the time he would start feuding with a young Tully Blanchard, correct? Yes. Of course, that was because he had been such an influence to Tully at the early part of his career. 
you know, um, if you go back and listen to our our our, our, uh, our special episode where it's a what like about a three hour interview with Susan Green, a lot of fans don't know Tully started out as as, as a referee for his dad. And Susan's earliest memories of Tully were her ref was him refing her matches, not him as a wrestler. So <laughs> don't know if Tully is exactly proud of me saying that. And sorry, Tully. <laughs> but I mean he doesn't hide from it, but <laughs> he's obviously much more well known as a member of the four horsemen than he was as a as a young pimple faced high school kid refing matches for his dad. But anyway. <laughs> now up to this time, really throughout his run in the sixties and through the seventies. Wahoo had basically been a babyface all this time, right? Maybe he had some oh, short yeah. heel runs yeah. here and there, but for the most part, he was babyface. Oh yeah, he was total babyface, you know. And and he he was he was so good as a babyface. Uh, I think even though we said it is somewhat uh, not wouldn't be accepted in today's world, Indians and somebody was still that proud of their heritage, and and I mean, you know, he wore the full chief headdress and 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 and, and uh, Native American jewelry to the ring as, instead of a, a robe or ring jacket, he would take it off. He still wore like these moccasin-like boots. His boots, wrestling boots, were regular wrestling boots. They had wrestling boot bottoms on them, but they were essentially calf-high suede moccasin looking with little fringes on the top. You know, that look was very easy to get over as a baby face in the 1970s. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking the era of the spaghetti westerns and. Uh, you know, the afternoon movies that your UHF station would play would be these old John Wayne cowboy and Indian movies, Tonto and the Lone Ranger. So that was a very visually speaking, and he was a big, strong guy. He was a very plain spoken guy in his promos. He was very, he was, he had a, he, he had a much same vibe that a Dusty Rhodes had, but in an ethnic way and in a less uh, uh, over the top promo style. It was a very relatable, common man kind of thing, you know? Most of his run were in southern territories, and like you've you've kind of gathered from what I've said, it was no no hidden secret. Wahoo was quite the sportsman, outdoorsman. He loved to fish and hunt, so he could relate to these local fans. You know, they're like, oh, he's one of us. So anyway, I digress. Go ahead. The reason I'd asked about him being babyface was uh, in his second run in Mid Atlantic, he actually did mm-hmm. turn heel and oh, held the U.S. title the for best. a while there. One of the one of the best heel turns ever. Oh my God! The way they did that heel turn was great. But anyway, um, yeah, he did. He did heal some, um, and that was when he came back from Florida, if I remember right. And, and and if I remember, if I remember, some of that heel run was him tagging with uh, a heel Paul Jones, which we just discussed, uh, you know, in a tribute show. So that was sort of, and Paul Jones himself was recently turned heel from being a babyface, you know. So. You got you got to change sometimes. You got. I mean, I'm I'm a rarity in the fact that I worked my whole career almost exclusively as a babyface. If nothing else, you have to switch at some point because you got to you got to change it up, keep yourself fresh, keep the fans interested. Well, here's the guy that they love so much for five years. When he turns on these fans, they're going to hate him just that much more as a bad guy, aren't they? Yeah, there were much. Uh, yeah, there were massive heel turns long before Hulk Hogan did his. Uh, amazing mm. heel turn in NWO. So you said you, this, you, it was one of the greatest uh, heel turns you, you ever saw. Uh, what turned on, uh, turned on Steamboat. That? Turned on Steamboat. Which okay, turning on Ricky Steamboat. Do I need to say anything else? Yeah, <laughs> it's like what we keep saying here <laughs> when it comes to babyface or heel. Everybody works both, unless your name's Ricky Steamboat or Tito Santana. The crowd is going to turn on you at some point. And it was and it was over the Mid Atlantic title. And this is this is right as Steamboat's coming in and just had this bloody feud with Flair getting the belt. You know the 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 the, the feud you hear about all the time, where where or Flair rubbed 
Steamboat's face into the concrete, and Steamboat had the, the bruises from six months because Harley Race went a little overboard with the sandpaper in the locker room to give him that effect. You've heard that story before. I'm sure many of our listeners have too. But it was right off the heels of that. Wahoo came back in to side with, with Ricky and then turned on him. You know, so George Scott was not a bad booker. He really wasn't. <laughs> he just, it was just by the time that he got the book again, when Turner took it over in the 80s, he hadn't kept up with the times and it just didn't. What worked in 1978 didn't work in 1990. That's all, I guess that's what I'm saying. Twelve years later, it didn't work. Yeah, especially considering George Scott tried to do it with the same guys. No offense, but Iron Sheik was of of 1990 was not the Iron Sheik of 1978. You know, <laughs> right? But let's cover some of the titles he held over the years because really the 80s was kind of where his career was winding down. I mean, obviously, uh, as right. you you personally can relate to, he did wrestle into the 90s, but. Uh, it was that late 70s, early 80s run that was probably his biggest run. And mm-hmm. going through here, uh, NWA Florida Heavyweight Championship, NWA Florida Television Championship had tag belts in Florida with Billy Jack Haynes, Jose Lothario. Georgia Championship Wrestling held numerous titles there. And, and the aforementioned Jim Crockett Promotions, six-time Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight Champion and five-time U.S. Champion and also a four-time Tag Champion. Uh, some of the bigger feuds I remember from this era would have been um, he was he came back as a babyface in the early '80s and had feuded and feuded with Sergeant Slaughter over the U.S. title, and this is when Slaughter was the top heel in the, in the for the Crockett's. That's some of the stuff that has recently been added to the network. So he was brought back in as a babyface to, to topple this big you know monster heel that was Sergeant Slaughter. Um, he turned heel again. And a lot of people don't know this. One of my favorite match finishes of all time. Um, of course, we all know that Magnum TA was brought into the Carolinas by Dusty to prime Magnum to become a world champion. That's well documented. And part of the, that plan was putting the U.S. title on Magnum. And then, of course, the legendary feuds that Magnum had with Tully, Blanchard, and Nikita Koloff were over that, that same U.S. title. Well, Wahoo had the U.S. title at that time as a heel, and it was a subtle heel turn they made so he could feud with Magnum. And Magnum's first U.S. title run came after beating Wahoo in a steel cage. And the finish was one of my favorite finishes because it was so simple, but it was so awesome, where Wahoo had been beating down Magnum for a while, and they were both bleeding because it was a cage match. Chief didn't mind to bleed. If you see any pictures of Chief in his his forehead in later days, it, it shows. Um they just did this series where Wahoo kept just doing that running shoulder tackle, like bounce off the ropes and hit him with a shoulder block and knocking knocking Magnum down. And Magnum was starting to fire back up, get that baby face, you know, Lawler drop, dropping the strap in Memphis kind of feel. He kept hopping up, like hit me again, and Wahoo kept hitting him with these shoulder blocks. And they did about three or four in a row, and then on the last one, out of nowhere, he belly-to-bellied Wahoo. One, two, three. Just like that. Wow. Wow, great finish, great finish. And it is, once again, Wahoo was so established as a tough guy and a legitimate star in his territory by having him be the guy that Magnum TA beat for that, for that title, that legitimized, legitimized Magnum so much in the eyes of the fans here. You can't, you can't even begin to imagine what that meant to the fans here. It's like, oh, wow. We knew Magnum looked good, and he had a good rap, you know, he had a good promo, and he had the, he had the look, he had the charisma, but we weren't sure if he had it in the ring, but by beating Wahoo McDaniel clean in a cage match, he had it in the ring all of a sudden. That's how you get a rub. Yes, exactly. that is the that is the prototype 
of the proverbial rub. He did the same thing a few years later in Florida, where he was also perceived by those fans as a huge star for a young up-and-coming wrestler 28 days into his into his career, by known, by the, known now by the name of Lex Luger for the Florida heavyweight title. Two guys, one who's a Hall of Famer, and, or both of whom I think are going to the Hall of Fame eventually, got their first big wins in their territories that they became stars in off of Wahoo McDaniels for belts. Once again, how influential is that? Yeah. So as we get into the twilight of Wahoo's career, he did wrestle again for Vern Gagne in the, in the AWA and feuded with the likes of Kurt Hennig, uh, Larry Zbysko, a Destruction Crew who went on to be the Beverly Brothers in the early 90s. I actually think exactly. De- Destruction Crew is a much better name than Beverly Brothers. Yeah, but, Wayne, yeah Wayne, but, Wayne Bloom and Mike Enos. For trivia's note, Mike Enos was one of the two guys in the ring the night that, that Scott Hall showed up and interrupted Nitro. But, you know, just a little trivia mm-hmm. there. <laughs> and then also Puerto Rico, which, yes. I mean, really was a was – a, and I think still is kind of a hotbed territory for, for wrestling. Yeah. And I think he was not dissimilar from a lot of guys. I think he feuded Abdullah down there. And, of course, everybody knows Abdullah was a, was a god as a heel down there in Puerto Rico. All those years with Bruiser Brody and, and Carlos Colon and stuff, you know. That, of course, was the waning days of AWA, and all historians will tell you AWA was beyond even being on life support at that point. They were truly dying. But I think Vern brought him in because he needed somebody that was a name, you know. Because Kurt Henning was not Mr. Perfect yet. He wasn't that well-known. He was just Larry the Axe Henning's kid. I mean, mm-hmm. we all saw the potential at that point. It's, I mean, God, look at the guy. But, I mean, he was still green, you know. One of the unfortunate things about Wahoo is most of the film that we have, and especially what you'll find on YouTube and on the network, is he was past his prime. As we discussed, he started getting a big push in the 70s, and he was already 30. So by the time a lot of the stuff that's available to view today, he was past his prime. Yeah, probably around fifty this time, right? Yeah, he was close to fifty years old, and a lot of a lot of the you know mid forties to early fifties, a lot of the fans of today's product who see stuff, they don't understand the reaction that Chief got because he still got huge pops even in the mid eighties here in the Carolinas, and they didn't understand where did that come from, and it's because the fans remember him from fifteen years earlier in the seventies when he was athletic and he was still he was in his prime and he was coming off football. I mean, he was such a great natural. I always say pound for pound, Danny Hodge is probably the, 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 the greatest, purest athlete and purest wrestler in the history of wrestling. Wahoo McDaniel, pound for pound, might be the greatest pure athlete ever to be a professional wrestler. There are, I mean, everybody's familiar with the flare flip, you know, where he goes in the corner and flips over and runs. Mm-hmm. I've heard old time fans talk about matches between Fla- a young Flair and a Wahoo in his prime where Wahoo took that bump and did it better than Flair ever hoped to do it. <laughs> that's that's really interesting when you think about it. And, and to be honest, both of them would tell you, Flair and Chief would tell you, they stole it from Ray Stevens. Ray Stevens was the first guy to do it in the 60s. Another, uh, another legitimate tough guy, but, you know, anyway. So many names we need to do episodes on, I'm telling you, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Go, but but anyway, that was why the fans would react so loud. Was even though he was past his prime, we remember the younger. And he still hit those chops like a tank, you know? And, and two of the better examples of that would be go on the network, go on YouTube. Two of his last biggest national known feuds would have been against uh, an incoming heeled gorgeous Jimmy Garvin, to the, which would have been around 86-ish for the Crockett's. And then in 80, late 86, 87, Rick Rude. And all credit to the late, great Rick Rude and Jim Garvin. They got an Indian strap matches with him, and those strap matches were legit. Not only are you getting the chops, you're getting – 
Wahoo didn't pull no punches with that leather strap. I'll just leave it at that. Go go look them up. They're both on the network. In fact, I think he worked Rick Rude at maybe Starcade '87 in a strap match. Wow, wow. But and and, and well, we've talked about on the on the Rick Rude show how tough Rick Rude was. Mm-hmm. But the feud between Jimmy Garvin and him, I really remember because I was really getting heavily into wrestling at that point. So you're talking like '86, where Chief was gone for a while. I think he was doing a, a Florida, maybe a Japanese tour, something like that. And he came back, and Jim Jim Garvin had been calling him out for weeks and saying that he was a coward because he wouldn't show up and and even said he had a big nose because he was an Indian and he had swamp fever. He had a promo that would never get over in today's world. No, no, <laughs> but, no, no. no. But, 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 but worked great back then. And then the, the promo Chief Cut is still one of my favorite promos of all time because I said he had a very, a very laid-back, subdued promo style where he comes out in his Indian headdress but with a suit on, you know, or at least a, a shirt, a shirt, a shirt and a, and a suit coat, not a tie, and looks at Tony Schiavone and he said, Tony, you know why I got a big nose? Maybe it's because I played 10 years of professional football. I've been wrestling for 20 years. And I've had my nose broke a few times. That kind of happens when you're when you do stuff like that. So that's why I got a big nose. I thought that was the greatest comeback ever for a baby face, you know, <laughs> for this, this, this extremely derogatory comment by the heel. I just thought that was wonderful. And another another feud I forgot to mention that was legendary from earlier in his career. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention it now. Um, in the late 70s, they did an angle right before he turned heel where Greg Valentine broke and Ric Flair broke his leg. And there's a, there is stuff available on YouTube of him cutting a promo from his house in Charlotte, the same house I've been in. And you can see what I was talking about earlier with the Indian decor in his home with his foot in a cast, talking about how he was going to get revenge. And to build heat while he was out with the broken leg selling it, um, Greg Valentine had these shirts made. This is back before mm-hmm. you could go get silk screen, you know, and it was these great, those, those three quarter length sleeve shirts with the, with the iron on that said, I broke Wahoo's leg. Oh my gosh. That got so much. <laughs> that was where Owen got the idea. I broke Austin's neck. That's where it came from was the, I woke, I broke Wahoo's leg. I mean, that was, oh man, that got heel heat down here. And to this day, you can easily find pictures of Greg, Greg Valentine proudly wearing that shirt, you know, pointing to it and such. Yeah, we're holding the U.S. belt, you know, that he got from Wahoo because of that. Yeah, it was that was that was that was great. I mean, to give you an idea, once again, the same era toughness. And Flair has talked about this. One night, Flair had to wrestle Wahoo. Was during, so we're talking mid seventies, and they got locker room, and Rick was like, "Well, what do you want to do?" And Chief said, "Well, I'm a little sore, kid. Just follow me." And Flair didn't find out till after the match. Chief had had a vasectomy that morning. Think about that. Ow. I'm a man. He had went to his doctor outpatient surgery, had a vasectomy, and wrestled a match, an hour match with Ric Flair the same day, that night. Are you kidding me? That is pretty amazing. I mean, more guys have told me, we talked about Mad Dog earlier. Mad Dog Vashon and, and Wahoo McDaniel had more cuts that needed stitches that they just, they just bandaged up more than any guy they can think of and never seen guys get stitches without any kind of local anesthetic or anything to numb it up more than Mad Dog Vashon and Chief Wahoo McDaniel. I have actually talked to the nurse here in Greenville, South Carolina. That used to be the head of the, the head nurse at ER. She was the head. She was uh, the employee nurse uh, over like all our physical stuff when I worked for our hospital system. She's personally told me stories of multiple times she showed up Wahoo McDaniel and he didn't tell you anything. He said just could just stitch it up and he didn't even flinch. And I asked Chief about it and he would just kind of shrug his shoulder and he goes, "Well, I was bleeding. I had to. They had to sew it up, didn't they? Oh, mm-hmm. well, you could have got him numb it up." And he's like, "I." I I had a six pack in the, in the truck. I need to get on the road and get home. 
<laughs> wow. Wow. Are you kidding me? Wow. Well, you actually covered what uh, the where I was going to go next, which was if there's any feuds or matches, uh, any listeners who may not be familiar with Wahoo's career, uh, were there any other matches or feuds that, that you would recommend? Because we got the, the Valentine easiest. thing. We got uh, yeah. the cage match with Magnum TA. Uh, I don't Ooh. think the stuff with Steamboat is probably on TV because that, that was no, it's uh, not. before it's not. Na- before TV came along. They, they, or they had TV, but these matches were uh, just in a local arena without any TV cameras, right? Right. Cheap plug, unsolicited, but Jim Cornette does have it. It's pretty expensive, but he has available on Jim Cornette collect collect cornettscollectibles.com. Uh, he does have a, a set of tapes he had that he transferred over to DVD format that are a lot of this stuff from Mid-Atlantic, and I think some of the Wahoo stuff is on there. Uh, it's expensive. It's an extensive set because it's like an eight-disc set, so you're going to have to pay corny to get it, but if you want to see a lot of this era we're talking about, that would probably be the easiest accessibility to it because it's not on the network, but the strap match that I talked about with Rick Root, I believe is Starcade 87. I think it is, but it, and that is, of course, available on the network. Um, and it's kind of interesting to see a young Rick Rude with a mullet and no airbrushing on his on his tights, just getting <laughs> his ass whipped like a government mule, to quote Jim Ross, by an old Chief Wahoo McDaniel. And knowing Rick, probably loving every second of it, you know. So you get in a ring with a guy like Wahoo, and he just you, you don't care about the pain. It's like wow, I'm in the ring with Wahoo McDaniel, you know? Right. Now, I am going to post a picture here as we're winding down here of Wahoo uh, in his football days. This was a pretty famous online scan of his football trading card uh, where he was a linebacker. And just the expression that he has on on his face uh, in in that card, I'd like to think, and uh, I'd like to get your confirmation on this trade, but but that Mm -hmm. is probably the Wahoo you remember, at least as far as... Mm -hmm. How how he would treat oh, yeah. you? I mean, oh yeah, obviously he's a much older Wahoo. You know, he had the crow's feet. He he had, he had fake teeth. You know, he had dentures by the time I knew him. And he 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 had like just beautiful silver hair, but he would still dye it black because that's what the fans remembered. You know, sometimes he wouldn't. Sometimes he wouldn't. Uh, he wouldn't dye it unless he had a, like a public appearance. And I would go up and see him, or he'd come down here and we'd go fishing, and it would be you know he hadn't dyed it, and I'm like, age showing, chief kid, don't start. I got a bottle at the house is what he'd always say. And then bottle him at bottle of die, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but he was, he, I remember one time we did a, we did a show together and he did a, um, he was just doing autographs and sometimes he could get a little absent minded. And it, this was at the point where his, his kidneys were beginning to fail and he was getting dialysis two to three times a week. And, um, <laughs> he had forgot to put his dentures in and he had probably signed a, a dozen autographs at this point. And I kind of walked over and just, just, you know, as casual and kayfabe ish as I could, Kind of tapped him on the shoulder and he turned around. I said, Chief, you got to put your teeth in. He was like, Oh shit, <laughs> you'll have to leave that. <laughs> and, and, and he said, Excuse me one minute and held the line up and he went back to the bathroom and he had him, I guess, in his bag. He put his teeth in. He, he forgot to put his dentures in. <laughs> you know, and I thought he was going to kick my butt over that one. He's like, Boy, you saved, my, you saved, you saved me there, kid. I, whoo. <laughs> he just, you know, it, it, wow. It was, you know, it was once we got close like that. We would talk a lot about wrestling, but a lot of times because we were both football players, we we would talk football, you know, and 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 just guy stuff. And it was it was so fun because he lived in Charlotte, I lived in Greenville. They're only you know about an hour and a half apart, 
And I would be up wrestling that way. And I'd say, Hey, I'm going to be in town. Can we get together? Yeah. Come on by the house. We'll, we'll go out and have lunch or something, you know, and we would just go have lunch or he had a lake house on Lake Greenwood, which is Greenwood uh, is a town about an hour South of Greenville. And he had a lake house down there in a bass boat and he would come down and go, Hey, I'm going, going to lake house. You want to come fishing? Uh, we have a couple of really nice golf courses here in Greenville, Furman university, which is a, a, a good sized school here in Greenville. Uh, same school that Xavier Woods attended. That's how I got to know Xavier Woods was when he was attending school there. Uh, they have a, a pretty premier golf course at the university. Uh, uh, the NCAA uh, national championships have been played there. He liked to golf. He, he loved to golf. Chief Lo- he always had his, his golf clubs in the back of his truck. Uh, he would come down here and go, hey, kid, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm going to hit 18. You want to come with me? And, man, you, it, it was better than a car ride with him. I would just shut up and listen and ask him questions about the business, and you can get a lot talk because we didn't get a cart. Even in, even though his kidneys were failing, and he would want to, he would just want to ride a golf. He would want to walk the course. So you can imagine the kind of discussions you can have in eighteen holes walking the course, you know. And then we the hell would be in the in the clubhouse for two hours afterwards, you know, having a, an adult beverage and talking about it and the stories. And he would get a little embarrassed when I would bring up stuff about, you know, my times as a kid as a mark for him. And, you know, and I think, I think it, I think it kind of tickled him a little bit, but he, he, if an Indian can blush, I think he blushed a couple of times, you know, <laughs> but, um, he was just, you know, a lot of the things we talked about, obviously I'm not going to talk about their personal, they were between me and chief, but they meant a lot to me. He helped me out a lot. Um, he, he psychology, the things I talk about, not just what you should do, but when you should do it, which is, I think something that a lot of the guys nowadays, especially for Vince are not getting taught. You know, it's not what you do. It's when do you do this and why do you do this? Those are the kind of talks we had. We talked a lot about football, about fishing. I mean, he, he, he used to golf with Lee Trevino, Lee Trevino. He would get mad when he couldn't beat Lee Trevino at golf. That's how competitive. And he was a scratch golfer. And for those of you who don't know golf, that means he didn't play with a handicap. He was such a good golfer. He should go play the course and hit par on, even on average day. So he was a scratch golfer. Uh, I mean, it, it just amazing. How many people, whole pages dedicated to them in autobiographies of men like Larry Zonka and Joe Namath knew a former president on the first, first name basis and could go play golf with Lee Trevino. Even I know the name are you, Lee Trevino, and I know are nothing you, about are golf. You, are you kidding me? I mean, I mean are, you, are you kidding me? That's three legendary athletes and a former president. That's amazing, you know? That's the kind of guy Chief was. Um, just his health took bad, though, and, but he never complained. And I knew he was in pain. I knew he was in pain because he was going to dialysis two, three times a week. Um, eventually, you know, he had to sell his house in Charlotte and move back to Texas because he just he needed constant care. And his sister was a nurse and she helped take care of him until he passed in 2002. And that was that was a long, that was a rough day. And I unfortunately didn't have the time or money to make it to Texas to his funeral. I have since been back to Texas and visited his grave and had a talk with Chief. Um, my fondest memory of Chief, though, and I, and I told you this story off mic, and I, I'll share it with our listeners. But at the end, he, he wasn't wrestling anymore. He was definitely, you know, he was having dialysis at this point, and he probably shouldn't have even been in the ring. But there was a promotion based out of Charleston, South Carolina, called American Classic Wrestling, and they were exactly what they said. They emphasized the old-time stars. And they brought in a lot of the old-time stars. The ones that could still wrestle would wrestle. The ones that couldn't, they would have them do autograph sessions. They would have them 
uh, do uh, announcing. A lot of times, Chief was the guest color commentator for their local television. And uh, myself and my tag team partner, Dr. Feelgood, were their top babyface tag team. And we were currently at the time in a feud with their top heel tag team that was comprised of Abel Adams, a local guy you probably have not heard of, but our listeners will have heard of a guy that he trained, TNA Gunner, Phil Shatter, who, of course, is now – what is his name in NXT now, Seth? I can't remember. I think he's going by his real name, Chad Lale, now. Chad Lale? Okay, he's going by Chad. He's always going to be Phil Shatter to me because that's what – but Abel was his trainer. Abel was one half of the heel tag team we were feuding with, and the other half was another local guy you wouldn't have heard of called Bob Keller. But he wrestled as Playboy Buddy Rose Jr., which he did get permission from Buddy before he died to do that gimmick. So they were a very cocky, you know, type of tag team. We were your, you know, a, a, a character babyface tag team, and it was a good feud, and uh, it had a lot of good heat. And a lot of the fans to this promotion were old timey fans, and that was the kind of the way their bookers booked their particular style. They wanted us to do old school Southern wrestling. And um, anyway, they ran some of the buildings Crockett used to run. In the, like in Columbia, South Carolina, and Charleston, like County Hall. And they're not big buildings, but historically they're important to wrestling in this area. And they would put a lot of fans in them. They would average – they were one of the best averaging crowd sizes of any, promo, any promotion I worked for at this point. And we're talking like 96, 97, so I was only about two or three years into my career. Um, and uh, Township Auditorium in Columbia was where the Crockett's always ran in Columbia. And it seats about 3,000 people, but they would legitimately put 800 to 1,000 people in the building. But it was and it was because they had guys like Wahoo and Sweet Hansen and the and fabulous Moolah would come to the shows. Wahoo was was doing their TV announcing as we were progressing this storyline along, and we knew that my partner was going to have to miss the next show they were going to have in Columbia because his wife at the time was going to have to have surgery. She was diabetic, and so they needed to figure out a way to continue to progress this storyline and but you know explain my partner being out. So we did the old spot where they, they, we did singles matches. I wrestled Abel and he wrestled, he wrestled, uh, no, it was other way. He wrestled Abel and I wrestled, I wrestled buddy, uh, buddy Rose jr. And they did the two on one and they started beating up my partner and they injured him. And I ran out to the ring and did, you know, the old baby face where you don't even try to, to fight back. You just cover your partner up and you're taking the boots now too. And the crowd's getting really heated. And Wahoo comes down out of the announce, out of the announce, off the announcer's table to check on us. And I thought that was going to be the end of, uh, of, of Wahoo's involvement in the angle. It was just one of those things, legend, local legend, baby face, gives us a little bit of that rub we talked about earlier, right? Mm-hmm. We'll jump forward two weeks later when we come back to Columbia. I find out Wahoo's actually going to wrestle as my partner. And I'm like, I'm, I, you know, I kind of pulled him over to the side of the line. I'm like, Chief, I don't know. I'm, I'm fine, kid. I'm fine. I'm like, but you're sick. And he's like, I'm fine, kid. The day I can't do this, the day you can put me in the ground, I think is what he told me. So the setup was just wonderful. And and we had about like about 800,000 people in the building. And we came out and their music started and they come out. And then our music started and I come out by myself. And they interrupt everything and they, you know, the announce the ring announcer comes up and I cut a promo. Like, no, my partner's injured because of what y'all did two weeks ago. The doctors won't give him clearance. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll, but I'll fight you myself. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we get where the bell rings and it's, they, we never touched each other. It was just one of those where I was, I was ready to fight, but it was obvious to the fans, I was not going to be able to withstand two against one, you know, typical black hat, white hat. 
Well, then the ring announcer goes, the ref, stop, 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 and the commissioner comes out. This is in the days when everybody had a commissioner because it was, you know, you're talking the, the Attitude Era with the Eric Bischoff, Mr. McMahon era, right? And the commissioner comes down and he, and he says, hey, there's one guy in the back who said he would be your partner, Crazy Train, because it wasn't fair for any man to have to fight two-on-one. And, I, and of course, Chief came up in an era when you didn't have music. Chief just walked to the ring. And I helped pick this music partly because – he had been using it some, I found out, when he was tagging with the, the guy I mentioned earlier, Jay Eagle, that ran the show where he busted me open with a chop. And it was Indian Outlaw by Tim McGraw. And this is in, you know, this is only a couple years after that was like the top country song in the country. And so the crowd didn't really recognize the music, but boy, it fits Chief. Don't I mean you know the song, don't you, Seth? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he comes out in the you know, and he and he's dyed his hair. He remembered to put his dentures in. <laughs> and he looks like, you know, he's a little older and he's got a little bit of a paunch. He's not as, but he looks like the Wahoo of 20 years earlier. Yeah, he looks like the Chief black again. Butch, yeah, the full headdress, the Indian road warrior pop, road warrior pop. The crowd went nuts. And I'm sitting here looking from the ring and, and I see him at the entranceway. And, and the only thing that crosses my mind is like, that's what a wrestler looks like. You know, that was my thought. This is what a real man wrestler looks like. And of course, I'm skewed rose colored glasses because of my childhood as him being such a big star. And all I cannot thank Abel and, 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 and Bob, uh, Buddy Rose Jr. enough for how awesome they were in this match, how they sold for Chief. When he, when he fought, they, they started out laughing. You know, they were selling it as the cocky heels. Oh, uh, old, the old guy. They were making fun of like, like acting like they were walking with a cane. And then he came in the ring and drew that hand back like he was going to chop him, and they both threw themselves over the top rope to the floor. It was just hilarious, you know. Mm-hmm. And crowds called them chickens, and we went to the floor, and all they took every chop that Wahoo threw at them, and, I mean, he beat the crap out of them. He beat – and they were smiling the whole time because, once again, we're in the ring with a freaking legend, you know. And we did the spot where Chief would chop him, and they want, and they would turn right around to a punch from me, and then turn right back around into a chop from him. And they, you know, we do the spot where he would pull the chop back, and they would do it a couple of times where they would literally wouldn't even they wouldn't even face it. They would just literally run over to tag their partner real quick. I don't want to have nothing to do with that, you know. Kind of like how uh, Dusty would do the the bionic elbows when he got the hot mm-hmm. tag. Mm-hmm. And they put him over. They didn't have to. They they put us over that night. They did the honors. And they, the finish, we did the double chop off the ropes. And then he did the chop, the falling chop to the head while I did a fist drop at the same time. And they one, two, three. It's a clean pin, you know, and um, the crowd went nuts. And then, of course, the next the next time we were – Chris was back by then, my partner, Dr. Feelgood, and, and we just went back with it. And But for that one night, you know, we, we got – which was unusual in a feud, an old Southern feud, the baby faces got a win, you know. But it was, it was, it was, it was a nostalgia pop. I know that. But it was it was so cool, and I understood going into the match what this was going to mean to me in the eyes of the fans of of this of that area because of who Wahoo. I didn't realize how much until I heard the pop. Um, and so the match is over, and the baby faces have powdered, and they've left us the you know the the the, the, the spotlight to get our shine, so to speak, from the crowd, our adulation from the crowd, and th- they started. Indian Outlaw again. I, you know, I told him to cue that music up for our, our not my music, but Chiefs, because I mean he was kind of the focal point, you know. Right. And and, and um, I want to thank Chief, you know, right there in the ring for what he had done for me, because I was very green. I was only about two or three years into my career, and so um, whew, excuse me. 
This is the emotion part you were talking about earlier, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry, sorry about that, folks. Um, but anyway, I wanted to thank Chief for what he'd done for me. And um, I went to hug him, and I wanted to whisper in his ear, thank you. You know, uh, and he, 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 he cut me off before I could say anything. And he said, kid, thank you for making an old fart feel like a young man again. <laughs> oh. And then we talked more in the locker room. And that's, that was between me and Chief. I'll just leave that. But that's the kind of man he was. Um, here I am wanting to thank him for really giving me the rub. And he's trying to – he's thanking me. He was a man's man. Um, he had no qualms about put, protecting the business. He was a guy who was not embarrassed to say, I'm a professional wrestler. He was proud of that fact. He was proud of his, of his Native American heritage. Um, but was realistic about what the perception of Native Americans were. Uh, he was, he was, he would, def- he would defend guys uh, underneath guys when he was the top guy when they weren't getting paid right. Uh, we said earlier we would mention, you know, why he never had a run in the WWF other than that brief stint when he was working when he was playing for the Jets. That's about the only um, major territory back in the territory days. Chief did not have a run as a top guy in was New York. Well, the reason why was in that time that in that time we're talking about when he's playing for the Jets, some of the underneath guys weren't getting paid good. He had an argument with one of Vince's local promoters, Phil Zacco, and he slapped him. <laughs> <laughs> Just slaps the taste out of his mouth over what he perceived as a, as a you know get being treating the, the the underneath guys wrong. And so when Vince wanted to bring an Indian in. To have that particular ethnic group represented in the 70s because he already had, you know, he had Ivan Putsky as the Polish guy and he had Pedro for the Hispanics and he had Bruno for the Italians. He wanted a Native American. Well, everybody said, get Wahoo. Wahoo's the top Native American wrestler in business. Then somebody reminded Vince Sr., well, remember that time he slapped the taste out of Phil Zacco's mouth? Don't know if it's a good idea to bring Chief back up here. And thus, Vince Sr. was convinced he was going to have a Native American guy, so he called Joe Scarpa in Florida and he became Chief J. Strombo. So <laughs> that's the only reason Wahoo did not have a run as a top guy in the WWWF was because of what happened when he was younger. And, you know, I don't know if, if Jay Strongbow ever thanked Wahoo, but he but he should because that arguably was was, you know, his most successful and, and financially lucrative run as a wrestler was as Jay Strongbow. And that's all because Wahoo McDaniel was, well, Wahoo McDaniel, <laughs> you know, so uh, – but anyway, there there are a lot of personal. I mean, I could talk for six eight hours on this. I know we don't have that long. We need to wrap. It's a long one. But Wahoo was was he was a hell of a man, and I I miss him dearly every day. Um, of course, him playing for Oklahoma, me playing for Georgia. The first thing I thought of this past year when the announcements were made for the college football playoff, and the first semifinal game was going to be the Rose Bowl of Oklahoma versus Georgia. I just smiled. I thought of Chief immediately. <laughs> you know, and I, and I was like, man, I, I, I wish Chief was here because he liked to gamble, too. He was so competitive. He liked to put money on things. I know he'd have he'd, the first thing he'd have done would have been called me and he'd have said, kid, we're putting $500 on this game. Don't argue with me. Fortunately for me as a Georgia fan, Chief would have lost that $500. <laughs> but, um, man, and as I watched that game, of course, it's, 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 it's an instant classic. A lot of experts are saying it's one of the best college football games you'll ever see. And it was an amazing double overtime you know, thrilling game. Chief would have hated the outcome, but we would have watched it together and he would have had a time. He would have loved that game. He just chief loved competition. He was so competitive. I can't say enough great things about Wahoo McDaniel. He's just 
was a real man's man and taught me a lot, not only in wrestling, but in life as a man, um, as a human being, as a father. He was a hell of a father. Oh, he's so good to his son. Um, I, I can't. I, I miss him every day. I, I mean, I, I know that's 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 trite and cliched, but there's not a day that goes by I don't think about Chief and a smile crosses my face. I miss him that much, and it's been 16 years since he passed away. Well, I don't know how I can follow that, but I will uh, add uh, for those of you listening who do have the WWE Network, uh, you can just do a search for Wahoo McDaniel in the upper right hand corner of the WWE Network page, and you're going to get about 14 pages worth of material. Now, some of that are whole shows where he may have only had one match in that, but there is a good amount of stuff uh, on Wahoo on the, on the network. The aforementioned Rick Rude strap match, I believe the, uh, the matches with Jimmy Garvin are on there as well. Mm-hmm. There as well. Uh, I know he had a tag match, and there's a tag match from Starcade 85. I know that's on there. It was him and Black Jack, or Black Jack, or Billy Jack Haynes against Arn and Ole. Um, I know that's on there. Some of the AWA stuff from the waning days of AWA I know is also available on the network. Obviously, some of the stuff that's just like job matches from the early Crockett stuff that's on there, like 82, 83, that's on there as well. Um, and I, as I say, if you go to watch that, listeners, realize the reaction you hear from the crowd is based on what the Wahoo we knew from 10 years earlier because the one you're seeing there is a little bit older and a little bit slowed down, but – Believe me, the chops are still there, and there are there are brief moments of how athletic he was. I mean, this guy was almost fifty and had a belly, but still threw a pretty no no arm drag and hip toss, even for a guy his age, you know. And he still bumped pretty good for a guy his age. So anyway, uh, yeah, it, it just it's worth looking into. He's a guy that sadly he like a few other guys I can think of. Uh, Bill, uh, superstar Billy Graham falls into this category. Pedro Morales falls in this category. Were top stars in that era right before tele- wrestling went national with with the Crockett's and Vince. So they just missed out on getting that national exposure in their prime. And sadly, what we have film of is stuff in their later careers. You know, um, so kind of keep that in mind and and realize you don't play you know ten years in the NFL and be an you know an All Pro and All Conference college football player at Oklahoma if you're not a pretty good athlete to begin with. So just an amazing man cannot stress how much he probably has uh, has influenced what we know as wrestling today. And I, I, I don't know why this has been argued by Steve Austin and Jim Ross and Ric Flair. And I'd like to get your take on it to kind of wrap up. He's a guy that is going to go in the Hall of Fame someday, you think, don't you? I think it's only a matter of time. I know Chief J. Strongbow is already there, but that's because he had the, the longer tenure. But uh, right. I, I think it's one of those things is going to happen sooner or later. Well, I mean, I think the last time I think national television exposure I can remember Chief having actually was the WWF. And I think you probably remember this. It would be the early 90s when Tatanka was brought in, who is mm-hmm. also a real Native American from this area. He's from, from Lumber, uh, Lumberton – or sorry, Pembroke, North Carolina. He's a Lumbee Indian. Um, he – they had the one where it was Jay Strongbow and Wahoo sitting around a campfire, essentially passing the torch to Tatanka as the, the next great Native American wrestler. Do you remember that that vignette? It was on the early days of Raw. Yeah, I believe actually it, it might predate Raw, maybe, but or maybe I just watched watched it on a weekend show or, maybe, or something like. Maybe that. Maybe it was on like Superstars or something like that. Yeah, right, right. But I think that's probably the last national exposure Chief had. You know, 
and that would have been I, I don't know if Vince Senior or Vince Junior is going to have the same I don't want to say disdain but concerns about Wahoo because Phil Zacco <laughs> and him obviously were not the same as Phil Zacco and his father's relationship and that's of course what the beef was and I'm not, and I don't think Vince Senior hated Wahoo he was just concerned was one of his local promoters going to have problems with Wahoo you know um, so. That that would be I, I I tried to find that on YouTube and I couldn't. Maybe I need to do some more searching. But that that's probably the last time you were going to see him on national television was that spot with Tatanka. Um, but he's yeah. definitely a guy that doesn't get enough credit. I hope when and if they induct Wahoo, it is a full on induction posthumously, not one of those legacy inductions. Because I think Wahoo deserves more than that. And his son is is around my age or a little bit younger. He could come and accept it much like other posthumous inductions, like Rick Rude, like Big Boss Man, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's a plenty of guys that still are good, in good graces of the company who could induct him, like a Ric Flair, uh, you know, or a Lex Luger or somebody like that, I mean, you know, could talk about, could talk about Chief. Yeah, Flair so, would be the perfect guy, I, I think. I think Flair Steamboat is the way you go, you know? Um, that, would be, that would be who I would choose to induct him, one of the two. But um, and Flair seems to get that a lot. I mean, Flair's inducted like five guys. I think <laughs> he inducted Piper. He didn't know. Yeah, he inducted Piper. He inducted Steamboat. I mean, it's just kind of he inducted uh uh uh, uh oh, what's his name Japanese guy Tetsuji Fujinami. That just seems to be Flair's thing, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, one more thing about the network uh, matches here. I, I was skimming through uh-huh. this. Uh, two names which went on to bigger and better things in WWE. Uh, some of these matches, there's a match between Wahoo and Ray Trailer, who, of course, went on mm-hmm. to become the big boss man, and right. a, a name some people might not recognize unless you can put two and two together. There's Wahoo McDaniel versus Dizzy Ed Boulder, who is a young Brutus Beefcake. Yep, yep. That probably was from Florida, wasn't it? I believe this is AWA, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, it was on their, on their weekend shows. Oh, okay, okay. So there's, I mean, just put them into YouTube search or put a search on W on WWE Network and you will find Wahoo stuff. There is one I found on YouTube that is a, just a montage of the Wahoo chops I was so famously speaking of. It's like just five minutes of Wahoo just chopping the crap out of all kinds of guys. <laughs> Woo, man. My, I started rubbing my chest when I told you that story earlier, Seth. That's, that was 25 years ago. That's <laughs> a, so, ooh, geez. <laughs> That well, left, I can that find left a that, double mark. Well, if I can find uh, that highlight reel clip, I will definitely put it on the show notes at classicwrestlingmemories.com. So uh, unless there's anything else you wanted to mention, Train, uh, I think we're going to – should we go ahead and close things out there? No, I think we've talked long enough about Wahoo, but but I can't emphasize – check him out. He was – Wahoo was awesome, man. He was, he was the man. Geekville Radio. Like I said, there's some stories in here you're just not going to hear – and very many other places, if at all. I want to thank you folks for listening to this installment of Eagleville Radio Anthology for National Podcast Post Month, Day 17. We are Geekville Radio. We can be found at geekvilleradio.com, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, pretty much anywhere you can get podcasts, you can find Geekville Radio, as well as our sister show, Classic Wrestling Memories. Just do a search for Classic Wrestling Memories or Geekville Radio or go to geekvilleradio.com for Geekville shows and classicwrestlingmemories.com for the wrestling shows. Give us a like, give us a review, give us a follow. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you think we can do better. 
I'm always looking for ways to improve this show. And I always say I appreciate feedback, especially when it's genuine. And Crazy Train can be found on Twitter at Crazy Train underscore JB. Our social media is Geekville Radio on Facebook, the former Twitter, X, and at Instagram. So drop us a line there. And like I said, let us know what you think. We're going to turn off the power here in the Geekville Radio studios. And we will talk to you folks again tomorrow for day 18 of Napod Pomo, where we will do another Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame induction, this time our first real person, somebody from real life, as our next inductee. We will talk where we induct our first ever real life person into our Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame. That is the legendary name in the geek community, Forrest J. Ackerman. We'll be talking about him tomorrow for day 18 of National Podcast Post Month, and we'll talk to you folks again tomorrow. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. Chief Wahoo McDaniel, we're talking about the Great American Badge. Wahoo, of course, an Indian strap, part of the Great American Badge 86. Soon we finish talking, we're going to show you a number about the Great American Badge, which you can call. But Wahoo, I know you're looking for that Indian strap, man. Well, you have to say, it seems like everybody's tuned and ready. Everybody's in a hurry to get their matches over. They're all ready. Their timing's the best I've ever seen. They got all the great athletes together together here for the badge. Believe me, I'm just proud to be part of it. Jimmy Carvin. It's going to be bad for you because I've got my match signed, an Indian strap match. I'm not going to stand here and lie and say I don't have the advantage because I do. Indian strap matches are what I do best. And you're going to be tied to me eight feet away, and that's as far as you can get. And the only way you win this match is to drag your opponent around that ring, touching all four posts. And can you imagine, just imagine how bad, Jimmy Govern, you got to be hurt to be dragging around there. But I'm going to do it. <laughs>